Welcome to The Next Great Thing. I'm Andrew Greenstein, CEO at SF AppWorks. If you've ever applied for a mortgage or refinanced a home, you know how frustrating and slow it can be. But a company called Blend is simplifying the process, aiming to reshape financial services as we know it. My guest today is Nima Gamsari. He's the co-founder and head of Blend. Blend's cloud banking infrastructure streamlines workflows and makes buying a home or applying for any loan a lot easier for consumers. More than 350 financial service providers use Blend's platform, including large banks, fintechs, credit unions, and community and independent mortgage banks. Nima, welcome to The Next Great Thing. Thanks for having me. I've heard that the transformation of financial services is just in the beginning. If that's true, where are we and where are we headed? I think what's happened in the last five years is we've seen a lot of digitization of financial services, but most of it has been digitization of the old way. You know, you apply for a loan, the bank comes back to you, maybe instantly, maybe 24 hours later, maybe 48 hours later, gives you an answer, and then you get the money a few days later, a few weeks later, depending on the product. That's great, and that's the way it's always worked. And now that it's digital, it's easier to access. But it has a few flaws, first of which is it still takes a lot of time. The second is you have to know what products you want. You have to know what the system, how the system works as a consumer to even know what products to ask for. And the third is a lot of the information that is out there, the consumer has to go through friction to get that information to provide to the bank. So bank statements, pay stubs, even if it's done digitally, it's still information the bank needs to, to make that loan. The new way is going to be the bank has information on you. They pull third-party information on you and they tell you, here's the next best thing for your financial life. If you have a car loan that's two points too high on the rate, or hey, do you know that you have $80,000 in equity in your home that you can tap to do that renovation or start that small business? And they come to you proactively about that. That's something that we call proactive finance and something we're very excited about at Blend. I have to say my, my first experience with Blend was when I bought my home four years ago. It was night and day. I mean, there was paperwork where you had to fill it out manually. And then there was really nice, smooth onboarding that we've all become accustomed to. It didn't seem that crazy of a leap to think, oh yeah, this needs to be improved, but it took so long. Why was it so hard? What were the challenges you had to face coming in here into this industry and building an intuitive and easy onboarding experience as a starting point? Well, for one, there wasn't a real catalyst for change in the industry for a long time. And then the financial crisis hit, and that was where Blend was started out of. And that was, a, that was a catalyst for change. And two, on top of that, the technology that was required to even make the old process digital is, you know, there's a lot of compliance. These organizations are all regulated. And so building that technology is really capital intensive. And it hadn't really been something that was sought after for a long time from tech startups. And the third reason is maybe just a kind of combination of all these things is because of the fact that it was so capital intensive in a regulated space and there was no catalyst, there were no companies that were being started to do so. And so we were the first one to come out and say, hey, we're going to build the infrastructure for banking. And we started that about 10 years ago with just the idea of the onboarding and the mortgage process. And since then, we've expanded to really all the products that a bank offers and gone deeper and deeper to make that process simpler and easier. I want to get back to the landscape a little bit. Who do you see as the major players or institutions and where does Blend fit into that landscape? There's large banks, the name brands, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citibank. And then there's community banks that serve you know, local regions really well. And there's credit unions that serve certain member bases. You know, it could be veterans, could be employees of a certain corporation. There's independent mortgage banks that serve 
the broader local communities in a branch by branch way that there's home builders who, when they build homes, they want to offer you financing. There's fintechs who are trying to bring a new, maybe a new combination of products and services to the market. And Blend is the software platform that's used by all of these entities to help make their process simpler and easier. And we're sort of a baseline. We're a foundation that they use so that they can get a great experience out of the box and build on top of it over time. Now, frankly, for us, we just want to help make everything better for all these entities. And so ultimately, the consumer and the bank and the credit union, all those, everyone can win if we make technology better in this space because it'll lower cost, it'll create a better experience, and it'll create greater accessibility, which means more people will participate in the system. So you're building products for big institutions and for fintech startups alike. How do you balance that? And is your actual goal to just improve the process or is there one particular subset that you're most focused on? Well, I think if we can figure out this concept of proactive finance that I mentioned, where whether you're a bank or you're a credit union or you're an independent mortgage company or you're a home builder or you're a fintech, you can offer these products truly frictionlessly without the consumer having to ask you for them. And you're telling the consumer what you can do for them. That's the common DNA of all of these institutions. They all want to be able to offer that frictionless, high quality experience. And so that's what we focus on. Things that we don't focus on, we don't focus on how do I acquire customers better? We don't really think about the capital market side of the world. How should these things be packaged up and sold so that they're the optimal financial instrument? We're really just focused on how do we make the process of getting these products, of which there are tens of millions provided every single year to consumers, and hopefully over time there'll be more because they can be fundamentally good to a consumer's financial future. If we can do that, and that'll take us, I think, another decade to do, it'll truly change the way that both consumers and financial institutions work in this country. I don't actually hate ads. I think that if ads are done well, they could be the best thing for you, right? It really knows what clothes you want. You're going to a party and it tells you to stop by and pick up a gift at this store on the way. So I, I do believe in this idea that the perfect advertisement is actually a good thing for a consumer. You're talking about proactive finance. How do you surface the right product for the right person at the right time in a way that's not annoying or pushy or misplaced? Well, I think the times when ads are most effective is when they're contextually relevant. So if I'm already in my mobile app checking my balance for my credit card and it says, hey, by the way, if you can't pay this off, for example, if you can't pay off this credit card amount, you could get a personal loan and it'll lower the interest rates. You can make payments over 12 months. Something like that is so contextually relevant. It's a lower interest rate than what the credit card uh, revolving interest rate would be. It's right in the moment where I'm looking at my credit card balance. It just makes sense for everybody. Same thing, like I said, with an auto loan. Yes, if I have an auto loan out and it's at 8% and you can offer me 6%, yes, that's an ad in some ways, but you're saving me 50 bucks a month or 100 bucks a month. And that's meaningful. That can go to my kid's college fund or groceries or whatever it may be. I can really add up over time. And so it all comes back to doing these things in places that are contextually relevant. That idea of pre-approving you or fully approving you for these products before you even apply it doesn't exist today. So I want to talk about the different types of products that you could get proactive with, but I want to start at the beginning and understand why did you start with home mortgages first? Well, like I mentioned, we, we started out of the last financial crisis. In the last financial crisis, millions of people lost their homes. And the banks, especially the ones that had big mortgage books, were particularly under fire because they had to figure out how do we help solve this problem where we don't, we don't want to foreclose on this many homes in the country? Everybody was underwater. A lot of people couldn't make payments. And there was a financial benefit to everyone to not foreclose on those homes. If you foreclose on homes, it takes a long time to sell them. 
It further drives the price, the market price of all the homes in the area down, kicks the consumer out of the home. They're unhappy. They don't want to do business with you again. And so we were brought in to help sort of figure out what are ways that we can make the alternatives to foreclosure, which, which they existed, loan modifications, for example, or an alternative foreclosure where you'd change your loan rate, similar to refinance in some ways, but not just change your loan rate, but change their, your loan amount as well on top of that. And we started looking at the software that it would be required to create that. And the reality was a lot of the systems in place that were powering this $10 trillion industry were powered by paper. And so as I was working through that for a couple of years at my previous company, just had this idea of, well, I think that there needs to be a modern infrastructure. I don't think somebody's really built this technology for this industry from scratch for a long time. As a technologist myself, as a software engineer myself, I thought this is something that makes a lot of sense, has a huge impact and could benefit lots of consumers and the institutions providing those services to the consumers. And as a startup, how do you make the leap from a good idea to software that's being used by a bank? I mean, with all the regulations, with all the difficulties, how do you even get in there? I mean, it took us a couple of years. We, we didn't get our first real customers until two or three years in, and we took a lot of iteration on what we thought the right solution was. Now, we always thought that this process of originating these loans, creating these products was going to be something that had to be changed. But I remember so many conversations early on with customers or prospects that said, yeah, I just don't think consumers want to use their mobile device for these things. And so you have to overcome all that. You need capital to build the software. It's super complicated. And everyone was working on social media at the time. It was 2012. It was Facebook was all the rage. Snapchat was up and coming. And Everyone wanted to go work in social media at the time, everyone in tech. And so we had to get everyone motivated around this new mission of let's transform financial services. And it's going to be a decades-long journey. And that's a scary thing to say to people who are coming out of college. And it just took a lot of things coming together and honestly, a lot of luck too. There's so much of this that comes down to luck where there's a few things that if they had gone slightly differently, this company wouldn't exist today. But when all those things come together and, and you know, with the company, or in this case, Blend, we were opportunistic. And when those things did come together, we were all over it. That's great to hear you acknowledge that because I also run a business that just passed its 10-year anniversary. And when I look back, there were two or three moments in the company's history where things could have gone really poorly and it took a little bit of luck for that not to happen. And a lot of times, weathering the storm is what it means to survive as a startup. Getting through those two or three times when anything can go wrong. And you know, for us, it was always about, well, can we just buy ourselves a little more time and maybe that time is what allows luck to develop. So it's just great to hear you acknowledge that for anyone else that's thinking about starting something and not sure how to deal with uncertainty or un, you know information that isn't clear. Yeah, and I think for founders, you know, my biggest advice to them is and we had we had this woman Angela Duckworth come talk to us about grit. I think grit is the number one trait of successful founders because most of the things that are worth doing are nearly impossible to do. You know, I developed it through, or maybe I had it already, but it sort of came to life during, I was a professional poker player for a long time. And you just have no choice. There's too many things that are out of, out of your control. And if you don't have the grit to figure out how to become great, you won't become a great professional poker player. How do you play poker professionally? What kind of skills do you need and how do they apply in the business world? Draw some parallels for us. Poker is a game of psychology. And so that's one thing that's very important in business. I mean, enterprise sales, selling software to large financial institutions, a lot of it's around understanding their psychology. What, do, what is it that they care about? What are the things that are going to drive them? 
and help you and your team really rally around those things so that you can be really on the same team as them. So that's one thing. I mean, there's other things too, right? Like I said, there's a lot around grit that came from that, that I think is extremely applicable to business, especially founding a business that's very unlikely to succeed. Not overly being focused on outputs, meaning there's a lot of cases where I made the right decision in poker and I lost the hand. And there's a lot of cases where I made the wrong decision and I won the hand. There's so many things that I learned that I took to business. And we, we actually center a lot of our values and blend around some of those things because it's so hard to know if you're doing the right thing early on. And so those inputs versus outputs is one example of one. We, we really look at how we're acting, what we're doing, and use that to decide if we're doing a good job versus did the customer buy or not in the end. You got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. Yes. You know, how does that apply in business world? I think sometimes trying to understand when you should go all in versus when you should fold your hand and play the next hand. I mean, there's some things that apply there where, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of times when people are unwilling to go all in on something that seems to be going well because they're still unsure of the outcome. You know, there's times when I went all in poker and I was very unsure of the outcome and it turned out to be great. And there's times where I went all in and I had the winning hand and I was still unsure of the outcome though. And the outcome ended up against me. And then I, I see this in business all the time where they're like, well, we don't know if this deal is coming through or not. Do we really want to devote resources to it? I'm like, we're going to win. We're going to go make this thing happen. We had a couple of different product ideas before we had our first real product market fit, which is the moment where you now suddenly have a product that's something you can scale across the entire market and everyone wants it. You know, this is before our first product. We had a few things that were working. And then we had one that I just remember I would go and I would have these conversations with banks around these three products. And this one just always would make their eyes light up. And I just remember coming back to the team and saying, we just got to go all in on this one. Like these other two are great. They are good ideas. They just weren't the right idea. We're just going to go all in on this one. I know we don't have customers for this yet, but we're going to figure it out. And it's just having the courage in moments like that to do those kinds of things is really difficult. I'm not a great poker player, but one of the things that was always tough for me is an experienced poker player would kind of bleed me, you know, one hand at a time. And, and you know, this is the last I'm going to carry on this analogy with business. But how do you avoid in the business world when you're making decisions, not, you know, making small commitments that make you further invested to the point where you, you think, oh, man, now I'm in too far, but I don't have the great hand. Now I've seen enough. Yeah, I think there's two analogies in there. One is exactly what you said, which is the benefit of having focus and determination is that it's really clear what you want to do, what you will do and what you won't do. And so you won't get bled out by these things that are one-offs on the side that are not actually relevant to your mission. Discipline there really does matter. The other part of the analogy is around how the right decisions along the lines of your mission can compound over time. And this is what great poker players are good at as well. It's not about winning every hand. It's about making the right small bet over time. And eventually, in small bets, I mean, these things are razor thin margins in terms of expected value. But you do that over the course of one, two, three, five years, and suddenly you're the greatest poker player in the world and you're learning a little bit over time. The beautiful thing about tech companies is that all these things compound over time. You build the right software and you add a little bit more in the direction of your mission. And suddenly, three years later, you have this platform that can be used by everybody. Now, you know, for example, we have 300 plus banks and credit unions and home builders on our system doing you know, trillions of dollars in volume on, on our system. And it's like, that's crazy to think about when I look back where we were 10 years ago. I do want to talk a little bit about proactive finance and some of the products you're coming out with. 
but I want to set the tone a little bit first in terms of how you think about product development and specifically innovation and product development. It's a buzzword. Everyone has a different idea, but what does innovation mean to you and how do you stay innovative as a company and in your product making decisions? Innovation can probably mean different things in different industries, but for us, or at least what I got excited about when I first started Blend was something that was the cross-section of a really big, valuable problem with some new modern technology that exists that didn't exist five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whenever the last version of this problem was solved. I think this is why it's more and more companies that are founded by technologists, you know, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook or Elon Musk at Tesla, because those people really understand how technology works and they understand some other complex thing in the real world and they somehow see some ability for those things to overlap and create a better version of that. So that's kind of how I define innovation and, and, and proactive finance is a piece of that. I mean, these things weren't possible. You couldn't understand someone's income stream in real time 10 years ago. You had to go and get the pay stubs and the W-2s. Now all that's possible. And innovation is how do we bring the next leap to the world that's changed around us. So what are the next leaps? Tell us about some of the projects that you're working on that you've released recently and that you're planning to release in the next few years. One of the things that I'm excited about is uh, the work we've done around taking the end-to-end process of a mortgage. So how do we make it so that the insurance that you get when you need to get home insurance for your home, instead of you having to go call an insurance broker and them quoting you some things in sort of an opaque way, kind of make it in the process. Here's the insurance you need. Here's some carriers that can help you. Just tap the one that you like at the price that you like. That's kind of a version of proactive finance in some ways, going back to being contextually relevant. We're going to show you the two or three things that might make sense for you here and let you pick the one that makes the most sense for you. Or how about the closing process? The closing process is one of the most painful, at least was for me. The closing process involves usually a huge stack of paper. That's been done the old way for a long time. You go into a title insurance company's office and you sign a bunch of papers. Really expensive process for the consumer. They have to drive somewhere, spend an hour signing 50 different pages on a, on a document. We've developed an interface that can do all of that over video, in your pajamas, on your schedule, whenever you'd like. I mentioned the income verification piece. There's been a lot of innovation in that space. And now what I'm excited about is continuing to work down that path, but also start to think, look at things like home equity lending. How do we make that a truly proactive process for consumers? Because it allows this massive amount of equity that we've amassed to be used for other purposes to improve our lives. Exactly. It's thinking about like almost like a bank account where now you can tap that bank account in a way that wasn't possible or was possible 10 years ago, but it was a lot more friction to do so. So the future is exciting in fintech, but the present is also calling. And as we know, the, the mortgage industry is unsteady right now, or maybe in your mind, it's not unsteady, but it's taken a turn. How does that impact your decisions from a product-making perspective? And how does that change your outlook in terms of where the future goes for fintech? Well, I think that the the last two years were sort of unnatural. I would say this year actually feels sort of normal to me in some ways. If the volumes had stayed at this level steady for the last three years, I think the ecosystem would have been a lot healthier than it is right now. But the fact that volumes shot up two years ago, right at the start of COVID, because interest rates came crashing down, and then they were artificially high for a long time, meant that people weren't really focused on how do I build the future? They were focused on how do I make make sure to take advantage of this low interest rate environment. So they were 
all focused on refinances and getting consumers access to a lower rate, which is great and really noble. But it's sort of, I think it held back the future a little bit. And now the interest rates have come down really quickly. It's led to some other effects where there's a large number of lenders out there competing for a smaller amount of volume. And so margins are coming down, which is not great for the industry. It means that it's good for consumers in some ways because it means that rates are staying lower than they could otherwise stay. But it's just, it's sort of an unhealthy where when margins come down, people are less willing to invest. But now that I'm seeing that things are starting to stabilize, and we really think starting in the next few months, volumes and interest rates are going to stabilize. As that happens, it's just, it's going to be so healthy for the environment. Yeah. For people that are a little farther away from the problem, why is it healthy? Well, when things are normalized in terms of volumes, when volumes aren't fluctuating so much month to month, and the industry can really plan around the volumes, they can invest more in the future. Whereas when things are changing a lot month to month and they start losing money one month and then all of a sudden volumes spike up and they start making a ton of money and then COVID ends and volumes come way back down and now they're losing a lot of money again, it makes it really hard for them to invest in the future. And ultimately, consumers don't necessarily pay for that in the short term, but in the long term, if we aren't able to take friction and costs out of the system, consumers won't benefit as much from the system as they could otherwise. And so the sooner we get back to these normalized volumes, which we're now starting to see, the sooner consumers will be able to benefit from the outcomes of the innovation that not just us, but others are doing in the space. I want to highlight some of the work you've done in financial equity and helping underbank communities. Can you tell us a little bit about that problem and what Blend is doing to address it? If we can help people have the entire financial services industry in their pocket versus them having to have a branch in their neighborhood, then more people in the underbank community will have access to even understand what's possible for them. I think technology will make this product more accessible to the right communities and more people will be able to take advantage of it as a result. That's something that is fundamentally true if we take friction out of the system. But then we're taking it one step further as we work with institutions that serve minorities. We work with institutions that serve the underbanked and we offer them our services at a much lower cost. And we want to make sure they have access to these products as well. Like I mentioned, community banks, they're the trusted local institution of that community. Maybe they've had a a local presence there for a long time, how do we make sure that they get access to the best software and technologies that they can offer their products at lower cost to those communities as well? And so something we're very excited about and we've started doing in the last last couple of years here and we'll continue to invest in as well on top of the baseline technology work, which we think will drive more financial equity and inclusion. So continue lowering friction and be proactive about the partnerships you're forming and the type of banks you're working with and making it easier to work with them. When you're talking about lowering friction, how does crypto fit into all of this? Crypto creates fundamentally new ways of doing things. What that means is that financial services can almost definitely be done better with crypto than without crypto. The fact that crypto has come down a little bit, I think is also really good for the economy. It seems bad for people in crypto now, but it's, it's so good for the long-term health of crypto that things are starting to, to settle down a little bit. Because crypto now exists, there's going to be a lot of applications around where consumers hold their assets. And so now this creates a different way of you're, you're buying part of a network. It wasn't possible a decade ago. Imagine if Facebook had been built in a decentralized way and, and people owned pieces of the network. In banking, I think it allows for people to potentially share in some of the risks you know, when you underwrite a loan as an institution A, institution B can piggyback off of that. And it could help a lot with how the markets use and transact these loans in a trusted way. And so there's a lot that could happen here in crypto. It's so early days 
in crypto. It's like we're still in 1998 in crypto versus where the internet was. Makes sense. You talked about advice you'd give others. What advice would you give yourself 10 years ago starting Blend? When we were starting Blend and the few years thereafter, there was a huge focus and emphasis on how much money you raised at what valuation and how many people you had in your company. And the more that we grow, the more that I realized that none of those things matter. The only thing that matters is creating something that's used by a lot of people. And the beauty of technology is that a small number of people can create something that's used by a lot of people and creates a ton of value for a lot of people. And so I would probably tell myself, hire slower, keep the team lean, very focused, and just go after the problem that you think you can solve with as little overhead as possible. And don't worry about those vanity metrics. They just don't matter. Number of people on the team, fundraising amounts, size of you know valuation, size of company, none of that stuff matters in the end game. And the, the 20-year game doesn't, clearly doesn't matter. Another thing was, and we've always had this culture of confidence, but also humility. But I think sometimes we got ahead of ourselves with some of the things that we did. And just even having a little more humility would have been good along the way. And so that's something I think about, you know, I think about myself is like, I just got ahead of myself sometimes, which part of it is I have to, and, and, you know, as a founder, you kind of have to get ahead of yourself to really believe that you're ahead of where you are so that you can keep pushing forward. But the humility has helped us a lot in the last five or six years in particular, as we've gotten into more and more areas of the software stack for these financial services firms. Sounds like good advice for everyone. We'll get you out of here on one more question. Why is Blend the next great thing? Well, I think one of the things I mentioned about when we started Blend is that no one was really building the software infrastructure for banking. And even today, 10 years later, there's almost no one building the software infrastructure for banking. And yet this is an industry that has been around for however many thousands of years. And it serves so many hundreds of millions of consumers worldwide. And if we can make it better so that it can serve everyone, it's going to change the way that people interact with their money. And it will practically create financial outcomes for people. And those better financial outcomes mean more financial freedom. And more financial freedom means people can create more value in the world. And so it's a leverage point. And money is a leverage point for people. And so if we can find ways to get more money in more people's hands, then they can do better things with their lives. That's great. Nima, this has been truly fascinating. Thanks for going all in with us today. Appreciate your time and excited to see what you and Blend do. We'll be following. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. The Next Great Thing is hosted by Andrew Greenstein, CEO of SF AppWorks, a technical agency that helps organizations and entrepreneurs design, develop, launch, and maintain web apps, mobile apps, and platform integrations. The podcast is produced by Kristen Sills, with marketing by Leah Roos. For more episodes, search for The Next Great Thing wherever you listen to podcasts, or check us out at sfappworks.com.